Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back and taking another deep dive into crime with us. Please feel free to follow me on Instagram as well as TikTok and using our support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. All those links can be found in the episode description. I will also leave timestamps for the episode so you can skip around as much as you would like. Today, we are going to be talking about the Idaho student murders. This case has been on my mind for a very long time, ever since I first heard about it. I've been into true crime for a very long time. It's always been something that I've just been interested in and looking into cases. When I first heard about this case, I was completely shocked and dumbfounded at the fact that someone was callous and brazen enough to kill four people at once in their home and they were so young. So I've been wanting to cover this case for a while. As always, I do wanna be respectful of the victims and their families. I cannot imagine the heartbreak and grief that they're experiencing at this time. I wanna do what I can to cover this case with the utmost sensitivity for them and in honor of the victims. So that way, maybe it will bring a lot of rumors to rest because rumors and speculation really do hurt an investigation. First. I'm going to start with obviously the most important people in regards to this case, and that is the victims. So first, I'm going to be speaking about 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. Ethan was born on October 28, 2002 in Seattle, Washington. His parents' names were Stacy and Jim, and he had two siblings named Maisie and Hunter. And Ethan was actually a triplet. He was the oldest triplet, to be specific. And the triplets were just inseparable. I mean, that bond between multiples is always so strong. And the relationship that Ethan had with his siblings was no exception. Ethan was described as being athletic, outdoorsy, very hardworking, positive to be around, and just always smiling. Ethan was just a great guy. Everybody said that he was so good at sports. It's almost any sport that he played. He played basketball, soccer, cross country, He really loved to golf, surf, and play pickleball. I mean, he was just very well-rounded when it came to sports. And the Chapin family was very tight-knit, so much so that Ethan and his two siblings, the triplets, decided to move to Priest Lake, Idaho when the pandemic first started, and they wanted to work together at a tulip farm. This was a really good job for Ethan because he just loved being outdoors, so this was perfect for him. His parents, they decided to join them as well so they could all stay together. I mean, As I said, they were very tight-knit. Ethan and his siblings continued to be closer than ever when they all decided to attend the University of Idaho together. Ethan majored in sports management, which wasn't surprising considering how athletic and into sports he was. Ethan was also a member of the fraternity Sigma Chi, and he had a great time in college. He loved being in his frat. He made great friends. He loved playing sports. He was a very positive social guy, and people just loved to be around him. And it was at the University of Idaho that Ethan met 20-year-old Zanna Kernodal. Now, at first, they were friends. You know, they kind of just hung out pretty casually. But around the summer of 2022, Ethan and Zanna decided to take their friendship to the next level, and they began dating. When they started dating, everybody around them said that they were just the perfect fit. I mean, they had similar 
personalities and interests and they just seemed happy together. They got along really, really well and they had a lot in common. So now I'm going to be talking about Zanna Kernodal. Zanna was born on July 5th, 2002 in Post Falls, Idaho. Her parents' names were Jeff and Kara and she had a sister named Jasmine. Zanna was also described as being very outdoorsy and athletic and these were some of the things that her and Ethan had in common that just made them a great fit. Zanna was also known as being that one friend that was just really down. You know, Zanna was the friend that you called if you wanted to go somewhere. She was always ready for the next adventure. She was just a very optimistic person overall. Like Ethan, she was also outgoing. And again, this just made them a great fit. Zanna always made it a point to be inclusive of the people around her. She didn't want anybody around her to feel alone or left out. And she always made it her business to be that person that they could go to or hang out. So as I said, Zanna was also a very athletic person and she played soccer, volleyball, and track. She absolutely loved playing sports. This was something that was just a great pastime for her. Upon entering and attending the University of Idaho, Zanna majored in marketing, and I was also actually a marketing major. This just lets me know that Zanna was very innovative and creative and just overall a people person, and she was described this way by people who knew and loved her. Zanna became a member of the sorority Pi Beta Phi while attending the University of Idaho, and she also worked part-time at a restaurant called Mad Greek. So she was keeping herself very busy and she was having a great time between being in her sorority, playing sports, focusing on school, working at the restaurant and spending time with Ethan. Now I'm going to speak about Madison or Maddie Mogan, who was 21 years old. Maddie was born on May 25th, 2001 in Eugene, Oregon. Her parents' names were Karen and Ben and she was the only child. Eventually her family moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho when she was just a toddler and her parents actually divorced while she was still pretty young. Regardless of this family hardship, Maddie was still described as being a very happy person. Her parents did a really great job to make her childhood as full as possible despite them being divorced. Maddie was known to have a great sense of humor. She just knew how to make people laugh. She was said to be very funny and overall just a warm and loving person and friend. She was very there for her friends. Now Maddie was also very smart and she got really good grades in school. Maddie did not play when it came to school. And to me, that's very admirable of a young woman. I mean, school can be difficult. I know we all don't really like it sometimes, but Maddie always made sure that she was on top of her studies. And it was in middle school that Maddie met her best friend, Kaylee Gonsalves, and I'll get into their friendship later. So it was no surprise that Maddie was going to attend college because of how much she cared about school, and she decided to attend the University of Idaho. And of course, she wasn't gonna go without her best friend, Kaylee. Maddie also majored in marketing, and she made the Dean's List every semester, which is so impressive. Making the Dean's List is difficult, but she was able to do it. Maddie also had a boyfriend named Jake, and she worked at the same restaurant as Zanna called Mad Greek, and she was also a member of the same sorority as Zanna, Pi Beta Phi, and it was here that they met and became very close. So Maddie and Zanna, they hit it off instantly, and they became pretty good friends because they ran in the same circles. Now I'm going to be speaking about 21-year-old Kaylee Jade Gonsalves. Kaylee was born on June 8th, 2001 in Rath Drum, Idaho. Her parents' names were Steve and Christy, and she had five siblings, and Kaylee was the middle child. Her family described her as being very 
organized and she was just overall a genuine, goofy, loving person. She was a hard worker. Kaylee had a great sense of style. Kaylee was also known to be very outgoing. She was a really loyal friend and she was just overall a strong-willed young woman. She was very sure of herself. Kaylee loved spending time with her family. I mean, she had a pretty big family and she just absolutely loved them. They were her world and she really enjoyed making memories with them. I mentioned earlier that Kaylee and Maddie attended the University of Idaho together and Kaylee majored in general studies. Now, Kaylee was a member of a different sorority called Alpha Phi. So going back to Kaylee and Maddie's amazing friendship. Honestly, this just sounds like the purest friendship I think I've ever heard of. They were just so close. They almost became sisters. I mean, they were just the dynamic duo and they spent a lot of time together. They were pretty much attached at the hip. Maddie was always at Kaylee's house and Kaylee was always at Maddie's house. I mean, they just couldn't stay away from each other. It was like an additional family member to both of their families and they really loved each other and valued their friendship together. Kaylee and Maddie even wrote a letter to their parents to convince them to let them attend the same high school together, Lake City High School. And it worked. I think their parents really loved watching their daughters have such a great friend. So they decided to do what they could to keep them together. And it was only natural for them both to decide to attend the University of Idaho together. And their friendship only continued to grow from there. Because Maddie and Kaylee were so close and Maddie was very close to Xana, it only made sense for them to get a house together. I mean, why not? Let's live together. So Maddie, Kaylee, Xana, and along with two other girls named Bethany and Dylan decided to move into an off-camp campus house together on 1122 King Road. Now, Ethan did not live in this house, but he visited pretty often in order to see Xana and spend time with her. And the area that this home was in was known as Fratlantis by the people who attended the school. So it's almost like the word Atlantis and there's a play on it and they just added the word frat to it. And the reason why this area was called Fratlantis was because it was very close to Greek Row where the frat and sorority houses were. I'm not sure if Bethany and Dylan were in sororities, but everyone else was in either a frat or a sorority. So Saturday, November 12th, 2022, it was the last home game for the University of Idaho's football team. And as you can imagine, everyone was so excited to attend. They were gonna tailgate. They were ready to party, have some fun. You know, it was game day. So that day, Kaylee posted a picture of her, Ethan, Maddie, Bethany, Dylan, and Xana. And she captioned the photo, one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day. And this just goes to show how much Kaylee absolutely loved her friends. I mean, she just really valued the people in her life. So all of them tailgated together in the beginning of the day before the game. But at some point during the day, everybody kind of split off in their own direction and started to do their own thing. Xana and Ethan attended a party at Ethan's frat, Sigma Chi, around 9 p.m. while Kaylee and Maddie went to a bar called The Corner Club. So Xana and Ethan left the party around 1.45 a.m. and both of them walked back to the house that Xana shared with the rest of the roommates, Kaylee, Maddie, Bethany, and Dylan. And remember, they lived right near Greek Row. So this was really only a three to four minute walk. Kaylee and Maddie, now they were still at the corner club only a mile from home and they stayed there until around 1.30 a.m. Around 1.45 a.m., they're seen on surveillance video 
at a food truck called the Grub Truck, and they were ordering food after leaving this bar. Now, the Grub Truck was a popular spot for University of Idaho students. I'm sure if you've been to school or you've been to college, there's always this place that everybody kind of hangs out at to go get food after leaving the bars or the clubs. And this was that spot. So there were a great amount of people around. This video has been very widely circulated. A lot of people have really been dissecting this video to see if they can see anything in there that may possibly connect to what ended up happening just a few hours later. And one thing people saw was a man in the video and he was seen walking in the direction of the girls shortly after they walked out of the frame away from the food truck. But this man was interviewed and questioned and he has been cleared of any involvement. Kaylee and Maddie were then picked up by a ride sharing service, either a Lyft or an Uber, and they were dropped off back at their house at 1.56 a.m. So at this point, everybody was back in the home, all of the roommates, including Ethan. A little side note, Kaylee had actually moved out of the house by this point because she had an IT job lined up in Texas and she was gonna be graduating early the following month in December. And she was simply just visiting that weekend to spend time with Maddie before she moved to Texas. A lot of people have thought this is very coincidental that the events that are getting ready to take place just happen to be on the one weekend that Kaylee came to visit. Now, I'm not sure how often Kaylee visited and that this was more likely to happen while she was there, but there's been a lot of speculation surrounding this that maybe this was done purposely because Kaylee happened to be there that weekend. But this is all speculation. We don't know that for sure. Now I'm going to detail the layout of the house. So this house was pretty big. It had three floors. The first and second floors can be entered in from the outside. And Bethany, one of the roommates, she stayed in a bedroom on the first floor. And there was another bedroom on this level as well, but no one was staying in it at the time. Now the second floor was considered the main level. It had the kitchen, the living room, and backdoor patio access through these two sliding glass doors. The second floor also had two bedrooms and Dylan stayed in one room while Xana stayed in the other room. And that night, Ethan just so happened to be staying in Xana's room with her. Now to the third floor. The third floor also had two bedrooms. Now Maddie lived in one bedroom and Kaylee, before she moved out, lived in the other bedroom. But Maddie and Kaylee were known to always sleep in the same bed because of how close they were. And on this particular night, they were sleeping in that bed. Kaylee's room actually was occupied that night. It was occupied by her dog, Murphy, who she decided to bring with her. So now we're going to get into the events of that night. And I do wanna give a trigger warning. We are going to be speaking about homicide as well as including a few details. If this is not something you're comfortable hearing, I will leave a timestamp in the episode description for you to skip ahead to. In the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, from 2.26 to 2.44 a.m., Kaylee tried to call her ex-boyfriend Jack six times. From 2.44 to 2.52 a.m., Maddie tried to call Jack herself three times. At 2.52 a.m., Kaylee tried to call Jack one more time. So in total, 10 calls were made to Jack, and this kind of made people think he was involved, but he was also questioned and has been cleared of any wrongdoing. So according to an interview that Dylan gave to police, around 4 a.m., Dylan woke up to some noises, and she assumed that it was Kaylee playing with her dog, Murphy. Dylan said she heard someone say, there's someone here. 
So Dylan decides to get out of bed and she opened her door, but she didn't see anything. Then she just decided to go lay back down. Now it's reported that Xana was also awake at this time, which the public didn't find out until later. And this was according to a DoorDash delivery driver who came forward and told police that he had dropped off an order to their home around 4 a.m. and that the order was for Xana. And Xana's phone records also revealed that she was on TikTok at 4.12 a.m. Dylan then reported hearing crying coming from Xana's room. And then she heard a man's voice say, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Dylan then got up a second time to peek outside of her door, but she still didn't see anything. At 4.17 a.m., a security camera from another residence less than 50 feet away from Xana's bedroom picked up the distorted sound of what sounded like a whimper and a loud thud. And you could also hear a dog barking repeatedly. Dylan then heard what she thought was crying. And it was at this point that she opened her door for a third time to look out and see what was going on. And it was this third time that Dylan opened her door that she saw a man in black clothing and a mask that covered his mouth and nose. Dylan described him to police as being 5'10 or taller, not very muscular, athletically built with bushy eyebrows. Dylan claimed that the man walked past her and she stood in her doorway, just frozen in shock. She then saw the man walk towards the back sliding glass door and leave the home. After this, Dylan locked herself in her room. Now, a lot of people have speculated how in the world or why in the world did this man just walk right past you and leave you alive after he had just murdered four people? Now, at this point, Dylan didn't know that anybody had been killed. There's been a lot of speculation surrounding why she herself was left unharmed after the suspect walked past her. I was more so wondering how close did he walk to her door before he left? Like maybe he didn't even see her. So a 911 call was not placed until 11.58 a.m., eight hours later, and the call was made from someone inside the home. Now people have, again, scrutinized Dylan for not calling 911 and just going back to sleep, but we don't know what in the world that girl was going through at the time. She was probably terrified. You never know what you would do in a situation like this, so it really is hard to judge what someone else has done. Anyone can say what they would do, but you really don't know what you would do. So when the 911 call was placed, the caller reported that a person inside the home was unconscious. But when police arrived, they did not expect to find what was inside. Inside were the bodies of Ethan Chapin and Zana Kernodal, and they were found on the second floor in Zana's bedroom. Zana was found lying on the floor and Ethan was found in the bed. Upon further searching the house, police found the bodies of Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves, and they were found on the third floor in Madison's bedroom, and both of them were in the bed. All the victims had been stabbed and murdered. Kaylee's dog Murphy was then located by police in Kaylee's bedroom that she hadn't been using and he was unharmed. There was also blood found running down the side of the house from the outside, which just lets you know how brutal this attack was. Not to mention that the rooms were just filled with blood spatter. I mean, it was a very, it was a horrific crime scene. Now, when police originally got the call, they were told that a person was unconscious. So they were not expecting a crime of this magnitude. So of course they had to call in backup. This was now a crime scene and they had to process this crime scene. So because this crime occurred so close to the University of Idaho, the University of Idaho sent out an emergency alert text to students at 1.04 p.m. And the text read, 
Moscow PD investigating a homicide on King Road near campus. Suspect is not known at this time. Stay away from the area and shelter in place. At 3.46 p.m., the University of Idaho decided to send out another alert and it said, investigation continues. Suspect unknown. Moscow Police Department does not believe there's an active threat. Shelter in place lifted remain vigilant. There was a lot of criticism regarding the University of Idaho lifting the shelter in place. People were just saying, you know, what are we supposed to do? There's a killer on the loose and you're just telling us to keep our eyes open. I think people felt a little bit unsafe at this time, which is to be expected. I mean, when you hear that something like this happened so close to where you live and go to school, of course, you're going to feel pretty uneasy about it. On November 30th, the University of Idaho held a vigil for Kaylee, Maddie, Zana, and Ethan, and there was a huge turnout. Everyone's parents spoke with the exception of Zana's parents because unfortunately they were unable to attend and they said some really beautiful things about the victims. First, I'm going to play audio from Kaylee's dad. So I, I'm gonna embarrass her a little bit, but I want everyone to know these girls were absolutely beautiful. They've been friends since sixth grade. We both put them in a charter academy. They felt like they were being punished. Sixth grade, they just found each other. And every day they did homework together. They came to our house together. They shared everything. They went, they convinced us. They made a proposal to go to high school, to a regular high school. So then they went to high schools together. Then they started looking at colleges. They came here together. They eventually get into the same apartment together. And in the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed. And it's, it's a shame and it hurts. But the beauty of the two always being together is something that will, will it comforts us. It lets us know that they were with their, their best friends in the whole world. It's like a book. It's like some kind of terrible chapter, but... There's beauty in it, and we're, we're going to get our justice. We're going to figure this stuff out. This community deserves that. And when I look at all you guys, there's only one way for this to get a little better, to heal a little bit. There's pain everywhere. Is You're just going to have to love each other. Now I'm going to play audio from Maddie's dad. Madison... Maddie May, she was, uh, she's, she was the first uh, granddaughter, grandkid of any of her grandparents. Uh, she was Karen and my only child that we ever had. And, uh, and so she got, you know, everything she ever did was such a big deal. And uh, she was so, she was just, such a happy just a, such a great kid such a perfect little baby and so just smart and funny and beautiful she was just nice to everybody and I'm, when I would meet people ever since she was first born and when I meet people I they say you know tell me about yourself or you're just trying to get to know someone the first thing I'd say is well my, I have this daughter and she's She's, you know, here's a picture of her. She's, she's on the dean's list at the at college, and she's she works hard, and she 
has all these great friends in the sorority and she's, you know, I just would tell them all about Maddie. And now I'm going to play audio from Ethan's mom. We are eternally grateful that we spent so much time with him. And I want to remind you that that's the most important message that we have for you and your families is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible with those people because time is precious and it's something you can't get back. It's really important. This is our message to you. It is really important that all you kids and all kids across wherever, even we've told this to our own two kids who are still vandals, you have to put your energy back into achieving your goals. Well, Ethan tolerated school. For those of you guys who knew him really well, he tolerated school. He loved the social life, tolerated class. He understood the importance and would want all of you to continue to focus on your futures and your ambitions. On December 2nd, a memorial service was held in Post Falls, Idaho for the four victims and family and friends spoke once more to honor their memory. There's honestly something about Maddie's dad I'm sorry. There's just something about Maddie's dad speaking up there that just really breaks my heart. You know, um, that was his only child. And, you know, everyone lost someone, of course, but there was just something about Maddie's dad. And I saw that a lot in the comments. So I was like, okay, I'm not the only one that felt this, but there was something about Maddie's dad up there speaking that just really tugged at my heartstrings. Him saying how he, he had mentioned how people would ask him about himself and all he would do was talk about Maddie because she was like his pride and joy. He absolutely loved her. And it just is so touching to see the beautiful relationship that they had and the way that he spoke about her was just in such a way that he was so proud of her and he just loved her more than anything. And something about that just really struck a chord with me. I really liked what Ethan's mom said about spending time with your loved ones and how important that is because I do think we as a human race tend to take things like that for granted until something like this happens. But you shouldn't wait until something like this happens before you decide to prioritize time with your loved ones. And I know we don't all do it on purpose. It's just kind of the way people are you get caught up in your own life and you forget that you really should spend quality time with your loved ones because you don't know how long they're gonna be here. I also thought that what Kaylee's dad said about Kaylee and Maddie's friendship was just heartbreaking, but it's also comforting at the same time to know that they lived together, they were so close in life, and then they died together. As tragic as it is, it's nice to know that at least they had each other during that time. They always had each other in life and in death. I'm sure that brings the family a lot of comfort given how upsetting and tragic this whole situation is. So now I'm going to get into the investigation of this crime and I do want to go back a little bit to November 14th, the day after the crime had been committed. So on this day, the victim's identities were released to the public and the families at this point obviously knew 
that their loved ones had passed away prior to the public knowing. On November 16th, the Moscow Police Department decided to hold a press conference and they told the public everything that they knew so far. And they revealed that the suspect used a knife to stab the victims and that the weapon had not been found. And so far they had no suspect and there was no sign of forced entry into the home. But they did believe that the victims were targeted by whoever the suspect was. The following day on November 17th, the autopsy results came back for all four victims and it was determined that the cause of death was stabbing and the manner of death was homicide. And now it was said that some of the victims had defensive wounds and the public was kind of confused about this because they were told that the victims were killed in their sleep. But for all we know, someone could have woken up and began fighting back or trying to defend themselves. We really don't know what happened in that room. So police began looking at surveillance footage of the surrounding neighbors in order to find clues to see if they could possibly link something that went on in the area at that time to the murders. And it was upon looking at surveillance footage that they saw a white sedan enter the neighborhood around 3.29 a.m. Now, the sedan was seen passing by the house three times before it stopped near the home around 4.04 a.m. And at 4.20 a.m., the car was seen again on surveillance footage speeding away from the neighborhood. An FBI forensics expert looked at the footage and found that the vehicle was most likely a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. On November 25th, a bolo or a be on the lookout was released to surrounding law enforcement to look for a vehicle matching this description. But this bolo was not extended to the public until 12 days later. But for now, it's simply just being released to law enforcement. A bolo is just to be on the lookout for a person or a vehicle that may or may not be related to a crime. So now as we're entering December of 2022, people really felt like the case would not be solved because there wasn't a lot of information coming out. I myself felt this way. I was a little like, okay, you know, they're not really saying much about this case anymore. There hasn't been a suspect yet. You know, is this case gonna be solved? Because given the magnitude and the brutality of this case, you just think like somebody has to know something. There's no way this is gonna go unsolved. But law enforcement was working behind the scenes. They just didn't wanna compromise the integrity of the investigation. So they had to keep a lot of it quiet and not to mention they had a lot of evidence to go through. Now Kaylee's parents spoke out a lot publicly about how upset they were about the lack of info that they were getting from law enforcement. They just felt shut out. They didn't feel like they were being supported. Zana's mother, Kara, she felt the same way. And she came out and said she felt like she was learning more from the news than law enforcement. But law enforcement knew a lot more than they were letting on to. They just didn't want the suspect to think they were onto them. Maybe they could have done a little bit more to tell the family that. Now, one thing that investigators found while speaking to the families was that Kaylee may have had a stalker. Now, this hasn't been confirmed, but police spoke to her parents parents and Kaylee had come to them saying that she thought she was being followed. Now there's not much info on the nature of this alleged stalker and if that is something that has been explored then it will most likely come out during the trial but as of now the public doesn't know too much about it. Now, earlier I said how coincidental it was that the murders occurred the weekend Kaylee visited. So it does make you wonder, was this person waiting until Kaylee came back to the house before they decided to carry out these attacks? That's something that we just don't know. If that is something to be found out, trust and believe it will come out during the trial. On December 7th, 2022, the Moscow Police Department decided to make the bolo public for the first time and they wanted the public to be on the lookout for a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. 
This information being made public just shows that the police were a little more sure that this vehicle was somehow connected to the crime or that this person knew something about the crime. On December 12th, 2022, police captain Roger Lanier spoke about the white car that they were looking for and he just gave a few more details on the bolo that had been released. So police believed that whoever was in that car may have had information as to what happened. But what the public didn't know was that police already had a suspect. But again, they didn't want to tell the public this because they didn't want to compromise the investigation. The family still kind of felt like police weren't doing enough, but this is because they didn't know that police had already had a suspect. So this was intentionally done in order to Again, keep things under wraps, allow the investigation to unfold naturally so that way there wouldn't be any bumps in the road. But finally, on December 30th, 2022, around three in the morning, police identified and arrested a suspect and his name was 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger and he was arrested for the murders of Ethan, Kaylee, Maddie, and Zanna. He was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one charge of felony burglary for breaking into the their home that night because even though there was no sign of forced entry, he was trespassing. He had no right to be in their home. Brian was arrested in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, which is pretty far from Idaho, but we'll put together all of those dots soon. This is where Brian's family lived and he was arrested at their home. And a special emergency response team used a tactic called dynamic entry in order to arrest Brian. And this tactic was only used in very high risk situations. But given the nature of the crime, it was definitely necessary. Upon his arrest, Brian Koberger was taken to the Monroe County Correctional Facility and placed on suicide watch. Now, at the time, Brian was living in an apartment in Pullman, Washington, and investigators were at his apartment collecting boxes of evidence. And what they found wasn't made public until January 17th, 2023. Investigators found one nitrate type black glove, one Walmart receipt with one Dickies tag, two Marshalls receipts, a dust container from a Bissell Power Force vacuum, 12 possible hair strands, one fire TV stick with a cord and a plug, one possible animal hair strand, one computer tower, one collection of a dark red spot that had yet to be tested, two cutting from an uncased pillow that contained a reddish or brown stain and the larger stain was tested and two top and bottom mattress covers packaged separately both labeled C that had multiple stains on them and only one stain was tested. As of now the public still doesn't know the significance of these items but I'm sure that will be made public during the trial. Brian's office was also searched but we don't know what they found in there yet. Again that'll probably come out during the trial. Because Brian Brian was currently in Pennsylvania at his family home and the crime occurred in Idaho, he was extradited back to Idaho in order to fight the case. So let's talk about this suspect, Brian Christopher Koberger. He was born on November 11th, 1994 in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. His parents' names were Michael and Marianne and he had two older sisters, Amanda and Melissa. Now, Brian was known as a youth to be very persistent towards women that he liked, and he would just go after them even when it wasn't reciprocated. So he was pretty persistent when it came to women. He attended Pleasant Valley High School in Broadheadsville, Pennsylvania, and he was known to be very quiet, and he was often bullied. According to his friend in high school at the time, Brian eventually got addicted to heroin, and he became very secluded, not to mention that he 
turned into a bully himself. Brian would make posts online regularly that he had no empathy for others. He said he didn't feel bad when he was mean to his family and he felt worthless, emotionless, depressed, and suicidal. Eventually, Brian did get clean and no longer used heroin, and he became a security guard for his high school after he graduated. But it was around this time that one of his friends said that he recalled Brian driving a white Hyundai Elantra. Brian then attended the Northampton Community College in Pennsylvania, where he received an associate's degree in psychology in 2018. Upon receiving his associates, he attended DeSales University in Center Valley, Pennsylvania, and continued to study psychology. It was there that he graduated from DeSales University in 2020 with a bachelor's degree in psychology. Brian later went on to earn his master's degree from DeSales as well in June of 2022. So Brian was very interested in psychology, but he was specifically interested in criminal psychology and the inner workings of the criminal mind. He even posted a request online for criminals to participate in a study that he was doing. And this was the prompt that he wrote up in order to request criminal participation in his survey. Hello, my name is Brian, and I am inviting you to participate in a research project that seeks to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. In particular, this study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. I think this was done for school, but people thought it was interesting that this was what he decided to do. And these were some of the questions that he asked on his survey. Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? Please detail what you were thinking and feeling at this point. Before leaving, is there anything else you did? After committing the crime, what were you thinking and feeling? With all of these questions, a lot of people believe that Brian was looking for tips on how to commit crimes. One question he asked is as follows. Why did you choose that victim or target over others? And for me, this is probably the most chilling question given the fact that with this case, there were only four out of six people that were in the home at the time that were harmed. So it makes you wonder if he used the answer to this question to specifically pick his victims, allegedly. He hasn't been convicted of a crime yet, so can't say that he for sure did it, but by the end of this, you'll pretty much understand that he's most likely guilty. This survey was done while Brian was attending DeSales University, and after he graduated from there, he attended Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, and he started in the fall of 2022. So this is why Brian was living in an apartment in Pullman, even though he was found in Pennsylvania. But again, that's where his family lived. So Brian was studying for his doctorate in criminology, which again is pretty ironic. And he worked as a teacher's assistant while he was attending the school. Now the students didn't really like Brian much. They felt like he was very arrogant and kind of cocky. And he was reportedly fired from his teacher's assistant position just weeks before the murder. Now, it was said a few months before the murders, Brian applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department. I don't think he got it because there's no record of him working for them. So now that a suspect has been caught and it's been made aware that this is who police feel committed these crimes, the probable cause affidavit has been released. A probable cause affidavit is a summary of all the evidence against a suspect that gives reasoning as to why law enforcement believes that the suspect committed the crime that they're being accused of. And there was a lot 
of extensive evidence and reasoning in this affidavit that connected Brian Koberger to the crime. Finally, this is what people have really been waiting for. I mean, so much time has gone by where we didn't really know anything. And I didn't realize that there had really only been about a month or so from the time the crime happened to the time a suspect was caught. But being invested in this case, it felt like so much longer. Finally, the public as well as the families were getting the answers that they had been looking for. So let's go back to November 25th, 2022, when the bolo for this white Hyundai Elantra was released to law enforcement only. The surrounding law enforcement had been very vigilant and on the lookout for this white Hyundai Elantra. Now, Washington State University and the University of Idaho are only 10 minutes from each other. So it was very likely that someone that committed this crime frequented both areas. Oftentimes when there are colleges that are close to one another, the students of both these universities tend to frequent both schools. So the Washington State University police were definitely looking out for this vehicle as well. An officer that worked at the school, Officer Daniel Tiango, he began searching the school database for the vehicle that matched the description in the bolo. And he found that someone enrolled at the school owned a white Hyundai Elantra, and it was registered to a student named Brian Koberger from Pennsylvania. Around 12.58 a.m. that day, another Washington State University officer, Curtis Whitman, he decided to head to the residence found on file for Brian Koberger and searched for the car in the parking lot. And it didn't take him long to find the car at a student apartment complex off campus. And he ran the license plates and found that the vehicle did in fact belong to Brian Koberger. So police decided to look him up and they found a picture of him and realized that he matched the description of the masked man seen inside the home. And remember, this description was given by Dylan, one of the surviving roommates inside the home. And I think what really gave it away was the bushy eyebrows because that was a very distinct feature that Brian had that Dylan mentioned. Going back to the night of the crime, the night of November 13th, this vehicle was seen on surveillance at 2.53 a.m. driving towards the highway that connected Pullman, Washington. This was the same white Hyundai Elantra that was seen entering and exiting the neighborhood multiple times before parking in front of the King Road residence and speeding out of the neighborhood around 4.20 a.m. Investigators also found a tan leather knife sheath laying on Madison Mogan's bed on the right side of her body. So the suspect had left behind physical evidence and he probably didn't even know it. The knife sheath, which is a knife cover, it's what you carry and store a knife in, had the United States Marine Corps symbol on it. And given the injuries that the victim sustained, police were able to conclude that the knife that was used was a military grade knife. And there was male DNA found on the button snap of this knife sheath. And it had been sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing, but police have not been able to find the knife or the murder weapon yet. So remember earlier how I said I was really wondering just how close did the suspect walk past Dylan's door? Did he walk close enough to see her? When investigators processed the crime scene for the second time, they found a shoe print and it was found right outside of Dylan's bedroom door. 
The shoe print looked like it belonged to a Vans shoe given the diamond pattern that it left behind. Now, I'm not sure if they've been able to determine that the shoe print did in fact come from Brian Koberger, but again, that's probably something that will come out in trial. If it did belong to him, that's just so crazy for me to think about. Like, wow, he really walked that close to her door and just walked right past her. It's just mind boggling to even imagine. I can't even imagine how scared she must have been. So law enforcement were able to obtain a search warrant in late December for Brian's phone records. And they found that Brian's phone pinged off of cell phone towers near the home of the victims. And it pinged a total of 12 times, dating as far back as June of that year. On August 21st, 2022, Brian was pulled over in an area that was only a few minutes away from the home. So this shows that he had been frequenting the area around the King Road house a lot. People are speculating that he was most likely stalking the house to learn their habits and possibly find the best time to attack them. And again, this goes back to my theory of him waiting for Kaylee to come back to the house before he decided to attack. Again, we don't know if this is true, but it's very interesting and worth noting in my opinion. Going back to the night of the murders, and this was revealed after law enforcement was able to pull Brian's phone records. So around 2.47 a.m., Brian's phone was no longer able to be picked up by the cell phone tower near his apartment in Pullman, Washington. And this indicates that the area he was in either had no service, he put the phone in airplane mode, or he simply turned it off. Around 4.48 a.m., the phone gained connection again, and it was first located a few minutes south of the University of Idaho. So your phone was turned off when you left your apartment and all of a sudden turned on when you were near the University of Idaho? Interesting. And then it shows him returning to his apartment. So this kind of indicates that he was trying to cover up where he was because that amount of time was just unaccounted for. Around 9 a.m. later that morning, Brian's phone pinged off of a tower headed towards Moscow, Idaho, and it showed him entering Moscow around 9.12 and leaving around 9.21 a.m. So this indicates that he returned to the scene of the crime. But by this point, 911 hadn't been called yet. It wouldn't be called for another three hours. Now, this information isn't in the probable cause affidavit, but it did come out that Brian allegedly sent direct messages to one of the victims over and over again. Remember I mentioned, Brian was known in grade school to be someone who would relentlessly pursue girls he liked, even if they didn't like him back. So this was something that was pretty in character for him. This hasn't been confirmed, but apparently an unidentified investigator told a People magazine reporter about this, claiming that Brian sent messages over and over and over again saying, hey, how are you doing? At this time, we don't know if that's true and we don't know if it is true which one of the victims he sent these messages to. It also came out that Brian may have visited Mad Greek, the restaurant that Maddie and Zana worked at. This information supposedly came from a Mad Greek employee that also spoke to a People magazine reporter, claiming that she remembered seeing Brian at the restaurant twice. But a mad Greek social media rep made a post completely denying this. They said to not believe information that doesn't come from the police or law enforcement. Police have yet to verify whether or not this was true. Only this mad Greek employee came forward and said that it wasn't. But again, if this is significant, then it will come out in trial. So going back to this disputed 911 call, it was later revealed that the 911 call was placed from Dylan's phone. But Dylan was not the person supposedly, that made this call. 
It was said that Ethan's best friend used Dylan's phone to call 911. Apparently, Ethan's best friend entered the house late that morning and discovered Ethan and Zana's bodies. They then checked their pulses before calling 911. This person has yet to be publicly identified. This hasn't even been confirmed yet as far as I know. Now, a lot of people found it odd that Dylan didn't call 911 herself, but she really could have just not thought anything was wrong. I mean, yeah, she may have heard crying and she saw someone walking through the house. She went back in her room. She probably didn't wake up for who knows how long. I mean, who expects that to happen? Who expects to hear someone crying and automatically assume that all of your roommates were killed in the night? It's really hard to judge those situations and you really just don't know what you would do. So let's go back to mid-December to discuss how how the police found Brian. So at this point, they're pretty much already onto him. They found that his car was in fact at the crime scene. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests this. So they begin following him. On December 13th, 2022, the day after a press conference regarding the bolo for the white car was released, Brian and his father were driving home from Washington to Pennsylvania. And investigators tracked his movements the whole time he was headed home. A license plate reader picked picked up his car in Loma, Colorado, and this was just one way for them to continue building a timeline as to where he was and when he was on his way home. On December 15th, 2022, Brian and his father were pulled over in Hancock, Idaho at 10.40 a.m. And they were pulled over for allegedly following a semi-truck too closely on I-70. Brian was driving and his father was in the passenger seat. Upon being pulled over, there's body cam footage of this, by the way, and I will see if I can post it on my TikTok. Brian was asked for his driver's license. Brian's dad then told the deputy that there was a mass shooting at Washington University. And Brian said quietly that they didn't know whether it was a mass shooting or not. This exchange to me just seems very odd. Brian just, I don't know, he just seems sus to me. A few hours later, Brian was pulled over again. Police were doing this on purpose because FBI wanted to see if Brian had any defensive wounds on him because this was just a part of their investigation because it was said that some of the victims had defensive wounds. So they wanted to see if Brian did as well. So law enforcement was pretty much stopping Brian for any little thing they could just to kind of get a look at him. I don't know if Brian knew at this point that law enforcement was onto him. And it seems like he may think law enforcement is onto him given his behavior when he returned back to his home on December 16th, 2022. So at this point, Brian and his father are back home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. And this was verified by surveillance footage in the area that spotted his vehicle. A surveillance team as part of the FBI was capable Facing Brian's house while police collected enough evidence to officially move in and arrest him. While they were surveilling his home, they noticed some very interesting behavior of Brian's. Brian was seen cleaning the inside and the outside of his car. He was also seen wearing surgical gloves. Around 4 a.m., he was seen taking his trash and putting it in his neighbor's trash can. So, kind of looks like he thinks people may be onto him or maybe he's just trying to cover his tracks before police are onto him. But it's too late, they're already watching him and they've been trailing him for weeks at this point. On December 27th, 2022, a surveillance team collected a DNA sample from 
Brian's home using items found in the family's trash can. So I'm going to break this part down for you. The DNA that the surveillance team took from the family's trash can actually belonged to Brian's dad, but they could use this DNA to test against the DNA sample found on the button snap of the knife sheath to see if he was related to the person whose DNA was on the knife sheath. So the FBI submits the DNA sample from Brian's dad to the Idaho State Lab for testing. And just a day later, on December 28th, the results came in that the sample couldn't be excluded from belonging to the biological father of the owner of the DNA sample. And at least 99.9998 of the male population would most likely be excluded from being the biological father of the suspect. So what all of this means is that Brian's father is the father of the person who owns the DNA sample found on the knife sheath. And it was a 99% chance that he was the father. And this proves that the DNA sample found on the knife sheath belonged to none other than Brian Koberger. Because keep in mind, Brian only had two other siblings. He was the only boy and it was a male DNA sample. If that was confusing, I apologize. If you wanna go back a few times and listen to it, I understand. So on January 5th, 2023, Brian appeared in court for the first time in Idaho and he was made known of his charges. I said them earlier, but I will state them again. He was facing four counts of first degree murder and one count of felony burglary. And the judge stated that the maximum penalty for his crimes were death or life imprisonment. As of today, Brian has yet to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty as I'm recording this episode on February 22nd, 2023. So we don't know what he's going to say, but according to his legal team, Brian has come out and said he feels confident that he's going to be exonerated of this crime. I don't know if he knows all the information law enforcement has. I'm sure he knows by this point because the affidavit is public and I know his attorneys most likely have it. So I don't know why he feels confident. He's probably bluffing because there's no way you could be confident when your DNA was found on a knife sheet that was left at the scene of the crime. That just doesn't make any sense. And it is a law in the state of Idaho that he is unable to use the insanity plea. If he doesn't plead guilty, it's going to trial. He cannot use an insanity plea to get out of it. The preliminary hearing is set to take place on June 26th, 2023. And then the trial is set to start soon after that. We will see if it does. There's currently a gag order in place regarding the trial. And at first it didn't allow prosecution, defense attorneys or law enforcement to speak about the case. But now the attorneys representing the victims and the witnesses can no longer speak about the case. I think America has been consumed by this case given just how brutal and brazen this attack was. I mean, a lot of questions that we have now really are, why in the world did he do this? I really wanna know what his connection was to these four victims and why he only only chose to harm them out of the other two roommates that were in the home. I just, I don't get it at all, but I'm sure it will all come out in trial. It could take a few months before this is found out, but it will come to light. There will be answers to these questions. We just might have to wait for them. All of the families of the victims have been so strong and doing everything they can to carry on the legacy of their lost loved ones. Ethan's family decided to start a scholarship fund called Ethan Chapin Memorial Scholarship, and they collaborated with Sigma 
Chi, which was the fraternity he belonged to at the University of Idaho in order to fund this. And the money will be given to one student member of his frat. The tulip farm that Ethan and his siblings worked at decided to plant a special array of yellow and white tulips and they named it Ethan's Smile because a lot of the employees that worked with Ethan always said that he had the brightest smile. These tulips are available for purchase and the proceeds from these purchases will go towards Ethan's scholarship fund. Zana's family also decided to start a scholarship fund called the Zana Carnotal Scholarship Endowment, and they collaborated with the University of Idaho in order to make this possible. And I will include the link as well as the phone number and the address of where you can make checks out to for the scholarship fund below. I will also include the information for Ethan's scholarship fund in the episode description in case you want to donate. This is something that no parent ever wants to have to experience and go through, but they really have done a phenomenal job in speaking out and doing what they can to move forward, which is probably so difficult. I'm sure the last thing you want to do is move forward without your loved one, but they're really doing what they can to keep their names alive and relevant. And that to me is just absolutely amazing considering what they've been through. This case has honestly been very hard to cover. I've been seeing things in the news and looking at it, but I think I speak for everybody when I say it's hard to follow a developing case. Sometimes it's so hard that you kind of just have to stop looking at it because you just don't know what's true and what's not. So I really do try to focus on what the police has released directly as well as what the families have spoken on because in my opinion, those two accounts are very, very important and tend to be the most accurate. My heart truly does go out to the families of the victims of Ethan Chapin, Zana Carnotal, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. No one deserves this. No one. And They all just seemed like such bright, amazing people. And to know that this was the end that they had to face, it just breaks my heart for them. They didn't deserve this at all. But to know that they have families that are still here fighting for them and being a voice for them is completely admirable and truly touching. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please be sure to go in the episode description and check out those links for Zana and Ethan's scholarship funds. I do think it's a great cause. I will be donating. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you in the water soon.